welcome to Dads with Daughters. In this show, we spotlight dads, resources, and more to help you be the best dad you can be. Welcome back to the Dads with Daughters podcast, where we bring you guests to help you be active participants in your daughter's lives, raising them to be strong, independent women. Every week, I try to broaden your horizon, make you think in a little bit different way, and introduce you to people that will help you do just that. This week, I've got another great guest. Annette Simmons is with us, and she is a keynote speaker, a consultant, author of four different books. And today, we're going to be we're going to be talking to her about a brand new book that she's got called "Drinking from a Different Well: How Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action." Now, the the book itself. It is dedicated to young people all over the place, young women, to try to engage them, to try to help them to be able to to look at the narratives that uh, that are posed to them from an early age. And and definitely it is something that I think can help all of us to better understand not only the narratives that our daughters are hearing, but what we can do to be able to better support our daughters as we move through their lives as they move into their adult lives and in looking at ways in which that we can help them to be able to support them along the way. Annette, thanks so much for being here today. It's a pleasure. I am really excited to be able to have you here to be able to talk about this because I think it's an important piece of, it's an important conversation because I have two daughters myself and I know that they are being bombarded on a daily basis with different narratives, different stories, different messages from media, from peers, from society in general. And, you know, your story is one that I think looks to me like it will uplift so many. But I, I guess I want to turn the clock back a little bit. Talk to me about this is this is one of your five books. So five books that are out now. And what was it about this specific topic that really engaged you, made you say, I want to spend the time? Because as an author myself, I know how long it takes. I know how long it takes and how much passion you have to have on a certain topic to do it. So talk to me about what was it behind this topic that you said to yourself, this needs to be heard and I need to tell this story. Well, amusingly, uh, my first four books were actually about this topic, but I just never used the word gender. So I had been in international business. I had an undergrad in marketing, and I've been studying psychology since I was 13. And what happens is that there's a competitive narrative in business, and it's seeped into government now, um, where, where people argue and whoever wins gets to narrate what's going on. And it's, it causes unfairness. It causes unstable agreements. And so the first book I wrote was called Territorial Games because I would be in business and I would say, that was a little off. And they would say, oh, no, you, you must have taken it personally. You, no, 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 that's not what he meant. And I'm thinking that's exactly what he meant in forms of intimidation, even strategic noncompliance, which is you get an agreement and they go, sure, we'll do it exactly the way you want. And you know darn well that the minute you walk out the room, it's going to go back to the old boys club. So that was the first book I wrote. Then I wrote A Safe Place for Dangerous Truth because when you have competitive narratives, no, people are afraid to speak out. They may be marginalized. And sexual harassment, obviously, has been something that toxic males use in order to silence women. And those of us who actually have sexual abuse, PTSD, in my case, pretty severe, it freezes us up. 
And so we speak up and then somebody, for instance, this boss that I had, and this is in the new book, turned his keychain flashlight on my breast when I was trying to speak. And I'm not a piece of fluff. I would like to say that, and a lot of dads, a lot of men would say, you just, you know, need to net him know what, who's who, and, you know, why didn't you just kick him in the ass or whatever? And it's like, honey, my brain did not come online again until 3 a.m. And then the next Monday, the boss calls me in and says, what happened to you was terrible. And it ends here. And I don't think we need to talk about it anymore. And because I had been trained by my dad to be brave, and courageous, and and not his fault, but you know, according to a competitive narrative, it made sense to me to be silent as a sign of courage. And it's the opposite of courage. It's it's self harm uh, to stay silent when you're being abused in a situation like that. So anyway, I then realized that storytelling was the way that we build collaborative narratives. So I draw a strong line between competitive and collaborative narratives. And competitive narratives, whoever is the most intimidating wins. And so then they expect everybody to use their narrative. Well, collaborative narratives is a different process. And so in researching women who like me were trained up to, you know, think parliamentary procedure was a good idea and all the rest of it, just instinctively knew this is not going to work in business or government. What we need to do is we need to create a narrative that's a function of all the narratives that walked in. And in order to do that, you have to have long listening and you need to be really good at storytelling. You need to be able to not just share your conclusion, which is we, we should all get along, but share a story about how you came to that conclusion. And what happens is that when you share a story about it, people can start to integrate these different narratives and they arrive with something that that they didn't walk in with. It's not like one narrative, one against the rest. It's the collaborative process. And so I wrote this book because I knew there was something I wasn't getting. And so the first thing I did was research. And so I asked men and women to tell me a story about power. So the first question is actually, how powerful are you on a scale of one to 10? which is hilarious because because women are like, what do you mean by power? Do you mean power at home? Do you mean power at work? And that's your indication that they have a different definition of power because the competitive system divides home and work into two different areas. But in a collaborative system, we look at both and we're starting to look at both because otherwise we won't have any women in, in C-suite positions anymore. And I asked them to tell me a story about what power meant in their life. And what happened is that there are stories that women tell that men just don't. Now, of course, it's non-binary. There's an overlapping curve. And, and in this book, I talk about the extremes because it helps us understand the middle. And so collaborative narratives, giving other people airtime could, in a competitive narrative, look like a weakness because listening too carefully to someone who you disagree with indicates that you're willing to you know, let them win from that frame. In a collaborative narrative, it's a bargain. I will not only listen and be listened to in return, but I will speak about my point of view in a much more clarifying way instead of just my conclusion. So telling the stories is the way that I facilitate dialogue and have done so with organizations since, you know, late 1990s. And it is a function of coming to a conclusion that may take longer, but it's much more 
aligned. It's much, much more fair to other, to all the different parties. Fairness is something that all's fair in love and war. People, our metaphors make us think that harm is just the cost of doing business. And for female narratives, harm is actually, you know, separate from avoiding harm and avoiding risk are two separate things. And so one of the things that that women will tend to do is because we have bigger circle of moral concern, we will actually try to avoid harming people that are outside the circle for competitive players. So as we look at this, I think that for me in any ways, I think of myself and I think of my daughters and the age that they're at. Both my daughters are teenagers. One is closer to college than the other. And I think that other fathers are going to be thinking the same thing, is how do we prepare our daughters for the world that they're going to be stepping into to best align them to be prepared for things that may happen, good and bad, so that they can find success, find success in their careers, their life, and beyond? I think it's very important for young women to learn how to handle intimidation. So one of the things that that happened to me is, you know, I told you that story about my brain not coming online until until 3 a.m. I have as you know, I'm 60 and I'm still working on this stuff. So I've and I teach other women as well. We have to have mental rehearsals for when something like that happens. And so talking to your daughter about sexual harassment and uh, instead of the competitive kind of narrative, which is you tell, you know, punch him back, which is kind of what some dads (laughs) might might suggest. It's about staying sane. It's about, you know, keeping your wits about you and refusing to be intimidated because a lot of these bullies, it's all bluff. And when you stand strong and stay sane and call someone out, then they are profiled as the bully they really are, instead of you getting hysterical or shutting down and freezing. So for instance, one of the groups uh, was a group of military, and there was this two-star male general who screamed across the room at this female lieutenant colonel, why don't you just grow up? And she leaned forward and she says, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but could you be more specific? And it was sweet to watch because it's not about punching back. Collaborative narratives require us to de-escalate. But if somebody hits you with an eight, you don't hit back with a nine. You may hit back with a seven. It's de-escalating. It's demonstrating that you could go toe-to-toe if that's really where he wants to go with this, but it's standing strong. And so these mental rehearsals, I think for daughters to have stories like this lieutenant colonel about staying sane and holding her dignity, there's finding any, any fairy tale or story or just telling a story from your experience when you see a woman who really holds herself with dignity and assurance Without going competitive, tell that story to your daughter. I appreciate you sharing that. Now, I have to believe, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but you had to have some father figures, and it may be your father, maybe other fathers, other men in your life that have supported you along the way, that have pushed you to think the way that you do, to whether it's the, the maybe it's some of, somewhat the experiences that you've had. But talk to me about these, the mentors in your life, the male, the males in your life, that have helped you? And what did they do? What specifically did they do to help you to become the person that you are today? Well, let me tell you about my dad. So my dad was a social worker. And and actually, he was a football star. 
And he had gotten a job in a petroleum, we're from Louisiana. He had gotten a great New Orleans job in public relations, and he realized it left him feeling empty. So he went back to get his master's and became a social worker. So that role models right there, um, integrity and being of service. And I benefited greatly. And my mother's a school teacher. So this is where I come from. Now, one of the things he did was, you know, he was a little too hands-on. There there was, you know, he, he could be a little uh, controlling at times, but it was only in, in my best interest. He didn't really understand collaborative narratives. They didn't teach him back when he was in school. So, but one of the things he did was after my parents got divorced, I was about 11, my dad would, you know, on Tuesday afternoons after school, we would spend time together and then we would go to my grandmother's for dinner. And so we had like three hours to kill. And dad would give me books to read like Rational Emotive Therapy, Transactional Analysis, any of the stuff that he was learning as a social worker. And obviously he had read the books too. And he and I would talk about, particularly with Transactional Analysis, it's a great model. And it's, you know, a model you could, you could, benefit from yourself as a dad, also talking with the daughter, it has it has this idea that we can, it, we have three kind of ego states. We have a parent, an adult, and a child. And it equipped me to imagine that when I'm belligerent or feeling mean, that means that I'm just in the child state. And it, so it gives me this framework to become you know, more of an adult or more of a parent if it's requiring some nurturing. So those books um, really gave me a lifelong model for solving problems by considering the patterns, you know, first, preparing in advance, which is one of the, the important things I do when I teach storytelling and when I facilitate dialogue. I learn how to create a mindset, which is to get everybody thinking along the same lines and also to preempt those defensive behaviors that we tend to fall into. And it's important to know which ones yours are. So that was incredible. The other thing my dad did was he wanted me to have summer jobs from the time I was, well, actually my first job was like 13. I would sort magazines, the Shreveport magazine. I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. One day, uh, twice a year, I would go in because it was it was just a biannual. Anyway, so he, he taught me how to make a resume. And so from the time I was 14, I had a resume looking for a summer job. And of course, behind the scenes, he was probably organizing people to, because he was a probation officer. So he had to find his 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 other clients' jobs. <laughs> so he probably did some of the same things with me. And I learned to walk into a room and say, you know, my name is Annette. I'd like to share my resume with you. And, and I got the best jobs. I always worked in a law firm one time. I worked as a mechanical draftsman because that was another thing that I'll, I'll have to mix it up. My dad, you know, I wanted to take art. And my dad, because of the way he had been brought up, said, oh, no, 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 that's a waste of time. You need to take mechanical drafting. Because he had, he had decided I could be a doctor, a, an architect, or a lawyer, whichever one, and didn't want to do any of them. So that's the balance where you can go a little too hard. But it did cause me to think ahead in terms of the courses that I was choosing, even in high school. Uh, think ahead and think about what it is I wanted to accomplish in life and uh, which, which courses would help me. Now, I have friends who turned out just as good, better maybe, um, and their dad was like, whatever makes you happy. Uh, so, so I'm not sure which way it goes, but he did overdo it. And yet I'm really grateful for it. Now, you know, one of the things you've been talking about is kind of the power dynamics 
And I think that you definitely see that when you get into the workplace. And for fathers that are trying to teach their daughters about this from an early age, are there things that you might recommend? Because I think that it's not always an easy conversation, but it's not always the easiest thing to help them to understand until they see things in person. So what are your thoughts on that? Some dads believe that you have to learn how to fight in order to win. And they're going to be teaching their daughters that. And I think what the heads up for them is that winning, there's just some physiological differences between males and females. And I think through nature and nurture, it really doesn't matter. Evolution conspired to have us specialize, more or less according to gender, to handle the paradox of whether we're taking care of us or whether we're taking care of them. And so competitive systems are all about taking care of us, and that's the fight to win. I want those kind of fathers to understand that that for many of us, and there's a Harvard Business Review research project that included nine different studies, that women who are incredibly successful will still opt out of taking the top job. And the reason we opt out, and this is collaborated, corroborated, sorry, with nursing attrition, the reason we opt out is we feel a moral distress. When everything's competitive, it's all about winning, it feels empty to us. And that's why I wrote this book, is for women, power is really connection. And so if we learn how to win with these beliefs, no pain, no gain, or you have to break a few eggs to, to make an omelet, what happens is as we get older and we become more, quote unquote, successful, we have a hole in our heart. It's not as much fun for us. And so one of the reasons I think women peel off in the C-suite, because these women could get those jobs. They know they could get those jobs. It's not a lack of confidence. It's, I don't want to live like that. And so a lot of the senior management and in, in less, it used to be less in government, but now government is just as much focused on competitive narratives. Playing video games where it's all about winning and losing can start to make you believe that life works that way. And I guess for some people, you know, they're quite happy it works that way. That's all they like is the way... They like winning, and it doesn't bother them so much when others lose. But for daughters, I think we tune in to other people's harm. We have more empathy. And so for dads, what I would love for them to do is teach their daughters that, yes, this is how the competitive system works, and no, you don't have to do it that way. And frankly, if we're going to solve our global problems, we're going to have to stop using competitive narratives and start using collaborative narratives to negotiate for, it's, it's going to be a less than a win for all parties, but it's going to be a win for all parties. So when we talk about that competitive narrative, and I think that there are there are definitely fathers that have grown up that way, they, that have grown up to be taught that that is the way to, as you said, win. That is the way that we have to be in the workplace, in, in life. How do we as men, in your perspective, flip the script and be able to flip our own program so that we can better align to understand our daughters and where they're at, but also 
where they're going to be at, and we can then change the narrative for them. Well, you know, I think I think your daughters are the hope of the future. I think that women's unique tendency to look at a big mo- circle of moral concern or to feel empathy beyond in ways where we will avoid harm in order to create fairness. And that's actually a good definition of fairness is avoiding harm. And so for dads, and this is the reason I wrote the book, is that understanding that there's a difference between avoiding risk and avoiding harm. And so the biggest thing is that in collaborative narratives, we avoid harm. And we do it as a way to create connections. If you look at Putin and Zelensky right now, Putin is, you know, competitive narrative. And and for him, harm is how he accomplishes things. And then Zelensky, you look on the other other hand, uh, there was this, this great photo of Putin at this long table separated from his people. And then Zelensky around a round table uh, with food on it. And for me, that illustrates a collaborative narrative, is um, including enough people where you understand that nobody gets to win here in order for us all to win. So avoiding harm is probably just watch yourself when you're saying no pain, no gain, or break a few eggs in order to make an omelet was actually first used during the French Revolution to justify murder. We need to really pay attention to harm avoidance. Another thing is the listening and the dialogue part. To role model that, I would recommend practicing it at work a little bit more. We are so committed to, you know, these competitive narratives at work. We think that it's, that's what you got to do. And that's a cop-out. That's not what you got to do. There are all sorts of options. And when you have a bully coming at you, and I'm using that term really loosely, it could be a territorial game player at work, giving this person a, a second chance with a dialogue instead of just branding that person as an enemy. And then that would be daughters compete for all sorts of things. And so really encouraging them never to see their competitors as enemies, but this being a more collaborative pursuit where we're just playing this one game where we compete. But other than that, we're collaborative. You know, I really appreciate you sharing all of this because I think that every father needs to be thinking about these type of concepts. And I don't know that it's always innately something that we think about, but it's something that we need to open our eyes to because of the world that our daughters are walking into and doing what we can to not only assist our daughters, but assisting other women in our own workplaces and allowing for us to be able to be the champions that we want our daughters to have in the companies that they step into as well. I'm a daddy's girl, and my dad was very involved. I'm an only child as well, and he probably wanted a son. And so, you know, all his eggs were in in my basket. And everything he did, he did with positive intent. But teaching me to be tough maybe went a little bit too far. So I think that role modeling for your daughters, how it's not weakness to listen to someone and try to come up with a shared solution. They will watch you. They will learn from you. And then when they're in the situation, they'll feel more of that. And this is what I wish for all of your daughters, that sense of calm coolness where a bully can come at them and they don't fold like a cheap tent. They don't freak out. They just continue to observe and use their brains. And in the first case, give this person a second chance. And then the second case, draw a boundary. Girls need to learn how to draw a boundary without feeling guilty about it. 
Now, I know that I've learned a lot in listening to this, and, and I'm, my mind is reeling and trying to think about ways in which I can incorporate this into the conversations that I have with my own daughters. If people want to find out more about you, about the book, about, about these conversation pieces, are there some resources or places that they should go to get more information? Sure. My website is AnnetteSimmons.com. My email, if you want to email me, I answer Annette at AnnetteSimmons.com. And the book, I really think, I thought I was just writing it for women, but a lot of the men who've interviewed me are like, oh, no, 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 this is valuable. So the name of the book is called Drinking from a Different Well, How Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action. And that's available in independent bookstores as well as the big online servers. Well, Annette, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the work that you are doing to empower women. But also thank you for being here today for your time. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing the work you're doing. 